Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hey, this is Aaron Hale. I'm so sorry I missed you. Please leave me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Aaron, so 30 years ago this week, there was this teacher in New Hampshire who was found guilty of convincing her 15-year-old student lover to murder her husband. And I was just thinking about how you have always been this self-proclaimed ladies' man, especially when you were a kid, and I'm sure you still were when you were 15. And I just wondered what was like the craziest thing any of your teachers ever tried to get you to do for their love. So I don't know. It's a weird question. Just call me back. See ya. From Milieu Media Group, this is 35, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 10, Sad News and the Secret of the Eves. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, March 23rd, 1991. Welcome friends, neighbors, and fellow nostalgia nerds to another episode of 30 Pop. We're finally back to our normal one-week-at-a-time revisiting of 1991 and all its pop culture goodness, and I couldn't be happier about it. A couple things worth mentioning before we jump in. I'm sure you've heard the little Patreon pitch that airs occasionally at the start of these episodes and very well may have aired at the start of this one, but if you'll indulge me, I just want to take a quick second again to invite you into that community. Not just because your monthly contribution of $1, $5, $10, or however much you choose to give supports and sustains the work of producing this and a bunch of other shows, and not just because it makes me feel really good to know you believe in my ability or at least potential to do this work well, but because community is so, so, so vital. Surrounding ourselves with people who have different lived experiences than us, different perspectives and ideas and memories. Friends, that is so vital in the real work of making this world a better place to live. And while that may sound like an overstatement of what I'm trying to do, I assure you it's not. I believe with my whole self that we can build that sort of neighborhood by placing stories, ours and others, at the center and then simply gathering around. This show is free and always will be. You can have it. It's yours. I'll keep waking up early and staying up late. Researching, writing, recording, scheduling, interviewing, editing, and paying for music and hosting and gear upgrades and plugins and a dozen other things. Whether or not you spend a single dollar on this or any of the other shows I produce. Because I love it and I believe in its potential. I'm just inviting you to believe in its potential with me. If you have any interest in learning more about the neighborhood of storytellers we're building together, click on the Patreon link in the show notes or email me directly. Whatever. I'd love for you to join us. Okay. That's that. Now, how about we get into the fun stuff? Just for a change of pace, I'm going to start with sports this week. 
On March 18, 1991, the two top heavyweight contenders in the world of boxing finally met face-to-face in the ring for what became, unnecessarily, one of the most controversial stoppages in the history of the sport. And when I say unnecessarily, I'm referring to the controversy, not the stoppage. The fight was between then 39-1 Iron Mike Tyson and 25-1-1 Donovan Razor Ruddick. The two were competing for a guaranteed shot at the heavyweight championship belt held at the time by the legendary Evander Holyfield, and let me tell you, it was an absolute brawl. There was a bit of controversy throughout the seven-round fight and missed calls and missed calls by the referee in favor of Tyson, the former champ. So when the fight was stopped at the end of round seven with Ruddick still on his feet, it was no surprise that those in attendance threw a big collective hissy fit. Ruddick had fought an amazing fight. And if you revisit the tape, the sound of these two enormous tough guys punching each other is honestly shocking. But, I mean, it was a valid stoppage. Tyson connected with a six-punch combo that while it may not have put Ruddick on his back, it certainly incapacitated him. I just watched it back and I'm telling you, the ref may have saved the man's life by stopping the fight when he did. Had Tyson continued to unload for literally another single punch or two, I think we'd have been looking at a Rocky IV situation. And I don't mean the part where Rocky beats Ivan Drago. I mean the part where Drago kills Apollo Creed in the ring. God, I love that movie. Anyway, it was a big deal, and the two did end up fighting again a few months later to settle the dispute and really figure out who would get their shot at the title. But we'll get to that when we get there. In other sports news, on March 19, 1991, in a seemingly, but not really, uncharacteristic move by NFL team owners, the city of Phoenix, Arizona was stripped of its opportunity to host the 1993 Super Bowl, which it had been granted a year earlier. The game was taken from them and subsequently given to the city of Los Angeles after the state voted not to acknowledge Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a statewide holiday. The NFL knew the legislation was on the table and was up front with state legislators about what would happen if the vote didn't pass. And even still, it didn't pass. So in an effort to avoid being associated with the blatantly racist move by Arizona voters, the NFL pulled out, costing the city of Phoenix between $200 and $250 million in potential revenue. It was the right thing to do, even if done for the wrong reasons. What could have and should have been exclusively an opportunity to stand in solidarity with their mostly black athletes. Nearly every quote I was able to find from the mostly white NFL owners and representatives were about saving face and distancing themselves from the fallout. While I don't particularly care one way or another about the NFL as an organization, I do wish I could say 30 years later that they're doing a better job of being actively anti-racist. But, alas. Anyway, Arizona re-voted a year or so later in favor of recognizing MLK Day and in return was granted the 1996 Super Bowl. Moving on. There were also a couple of notable album releases on March 19th. George Strait's 11th studio album, The Chill of an Early Fall, and the debut album from rapper Yo-Yo, Make Way for the Motherload. One fun note, when I was writing the script for this episode, I misread that as the debut album from Yo-Yo Ma, the famed cellist. And something about the thought of Yo-Yo Ma having an album entitled Make Way for the Motherload was really funny to me. But I digress. In other music news, and I hinted at this last week, a few days after his sister, Janet Jackson, signed the biggest recording contract in history at $32 million, Michael Jackson signed a deal with Sony Records worth, on the conservative side, $70 million, and on the less conservative side, potentially $1 billion. 
Jackson was only 32 years old at the time, and the long-term contract with Sony was expected to earn him more than $120 million per album, plus a $5 million advance for each record, and a 25% royalty on retail sales for his next six albums. Incredibly, this is all practically chump change when compared to the money his estate has made since his death, which is projected to be upwards of $2.1 billion. Unreal. But understandable. The man was a musical genius. Another musical genius faced unspeakable tragedy this week in 1991, which I would truly love to skip over in favor of happier news. But the reality is life is hard, and often, unfortunately, tragic. To skip over those parts simply because they're painful would be to miss out on so much of the human experience and to fail to honor the past. On March 20th, 1991, British guitar legend Eric Clapton and his former love interest, Italian model and actress Lori Del Santo, lost their four-year-old son Connor when he fell from a 53rd floor window of the Manhattan Skyrise where he was staying with his mother. I cannot even begin to fathom the weight of the grief all those who knew and loved Connor have carried over the past 30 years. No one should ever have to experience such a horrific loss. Clapton, the consummate artist, explored his grief musically, composing several songs about the loss, most notably his 1992 release, Tears in Heaven. heart breaks hearing the story, and it feels wrong in every way to share it and then simply move on to more trivial pop culture news from this week in 1991. There is no smooth way to simply transition into the top songs or movies in the country because who cares? But maybe that's just exactly how it is with grief. You feel completely disrupted by it, unsure of how to move forward, and meanwhile the rest of the world continues to distract itself with meaningless, everyday nonsense so as to avoid lingering too long in the hopelessness of the moment. I don't know. I'm just a podcaster. These things are too big for me. So for now, I'll just accept that there is no easy transition, and I'll let it be clumsy. Even still, my sincerest sympathies to those who knew and loved Connor as they endure this painful anniversary. The top album in the country this week in 1991 was, once again, Mariah Carey's multi-platinum-selling self-titled debut but we had a whole new lineup of number one songs in the country on each of the various charts we track on this show. The top song on the Hot Country chart 30 years ago this week was Clint Black's Loving Blind. And I've been loving blind Loving every heart I could call mine And I've been loving blind Loving Blind was Black's seventh single overall, his second off his sophomore album, Put Yourself in My Shoes, and his fifth to make it to the top spot on the Hot Country chart. Not too shabby for a guy from Katy, Texas, just about half an hour from where I'm recording this episode. 
the number one song on the hot rap chart for this and the next couple of weeks, of which I have no memory whatsoever and honestly couldn't find a clip interesting enough to share, was Looking at the Front Door by Main Source. To be clear, I don't dislike this song, I just don't remember it. And there's no real hook worth sharing. You can hear the whole song though at the link in the show notes if you're interested. I definitely do remember the top song on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart though. I loved it and every song on the album it came from. From Waco, Texas-based Quintet High Five, I Like the Way, The Kissing Game. This was easily one of my favorite musical groups of the day, and I consider it such a shame that they weren't more successful than they were. Not to say they weren't successful at all, they definitely were, with a few hit singles and songs featured on a number of major motion picture soundtracks, including Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, and Sister Act 2, among others. But they could just never really get any momentum built up before getting hit with legal issues, lineup changes, or other problems. They disbanded a few years later, having never really topped their early success. Nonetheless, I loved and still love so much of their music. I also, maybe embarrassingly today, loved the number one song on the Hot 100 chart this week in 1991. From the ridiculously named Timmy T, One More Try. And after all that we have been through Won't you let me tell you why One more try I didn't know how much I loved you One more try Let me put my arms around you Living all these lonely nights without you Oh baby, can we give it one more try? Oh girl, you know I love you. I just want you to know our love I'll always treasure. So please, just don't let me go. I got nothing. Looking back, this guy was the embodiment of all that was trendy and is cringy about 1991. Kind of one of those so bad it's good things looking back. Regardless, I loved this stupid song, and whether you can admit it or not, I know I wasn't alone. We also had a new number one film at the box office this week, after an impressive five-week run from Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster's The Silence of the Lambs, a film that hasn't held up even remotely as well, but about which I was exponentially more excited at the time. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. New York. A city where 8 million can scarf down their slices in safety, knowing that when pizza is close by, help Help. is never far away. (laughs) Any luck finding a new place to live yet? Well, you know, in this market, it's actually very difficult to find good subterranean housing. You'd think even an idiot could find a place down here. But no! Ah! Wow! 
And I thought all the really good dungeons were in Europe. The past returns, my son. Ah. Hey, guys, look! That's the canister that had the ooze. That transformed us all. Yes. Well, you're the last one, aren't you? Uh-oh. Oh, some animals are knocking down the telephone poles. Let them get their own cab. The next fight will be freak against freak. Take the ugly one. No, you take the ugly one. Oh, which one's the ugly one? Ninja Turtles 2. Cowabunga! The Secret of the Ooze. Don't forget, we're turtles! This movie, although clearly just exploiting the massive success of its predecessor, to which it pales in comparison, was the source of tremendous excitement for me at the time. And I was, once again, not alone. Despite bringing in an almost entirely new cast a script and plot that weren't even nearly as good as the original, and a much more cartoony vibe all around, this movie grossed nearly $80 million on its $25 million budget. And this, less than a year after the original grossed over $200 million worldwide. Granted, a huge portion of that budget was likely spent on hair product for Vanilla Ice's absurd cameo in the film, but hey, profit is profit. This movie will remain our top earner for another couple of weekends, so we'll definitely come back to it in the next episode or two. Finally, the last little bit of pop culture news from this week in 1991 was the series premiere of a show I didn't watch starring an actress I wasn't particularly fond of, but which was pretty successful regardless. Melissa Joan Hart in Nickelodeon's Clarissa Explains It All. While I had no need of a show about the woes of being a teenage girl, I can appreciate the concept for this show and the delivery, in that the title character, Clarissa, was constantly breaking the fourth wall and addressing the audience directly. Similar to, but even more consistently than the way Zach Morris did throughout Saved by the Bell. Maybe it was nostalgic for you. If so, I'd love to hear about it. You can go to 30pop.com and click on the answering machine link at the top to tell me all about your love for Clarissa or anything else we covered this week. That's it for now, though, friends. Sincerest thanks, as always, for listening to 30 Pop. I'll be back next week with more looking back on the 63rd Annual Academy Awards, WrestleMania 7, and who knows, maybe a little more Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Until then, remember, my record on the record clearly shows that I have no off-the-record record. Make a record of that. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>